Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This third, third Sunday of Advent, we join God's people in preparing our hearts and minds for Messiah's coming. Jesus' cousin John the Baptist was the great forerunner of Jesus. He was who, he who taught us in the way of preparation is the way of repentance, of turning towards God and finding ourselves in him alone. Luke 3, 7 through 18, recount the core of John's message. Let us hear with open ears and open hearts as we prepare for Christ's coming. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you blood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestors, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children to Abraham. Abraham, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. That every tree, therefore, shall not that therefore does that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd said to him, "What then should we do?" In reply, he said to them, "Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none." And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to him and said, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats of false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As people were filled with expectation, and they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but there's one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat from into his granary, granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. We light these candles with the, re- the assurance that the Holy Spirit has graciously prepared the way for us to enter into Christ's presence. God of hope, you call us home from the exile of selfish oppression to the freedom of justice, the balm of healing, and the joy of sharing. 
Make us strong to join you in, in your holy work as friends of strangers and victims and compassion companions to those who, whom others shun as the happiness of those whose bro hearts are broken we may make our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord God of joy and exaltation and enrich the poor and give us hope we live in fear look upon what needs us they and give us the good news of our salvation and keep us faithful to you merciful God of peace your work spoken by the prophets restores your people life and hope fill our hearts with the joy of your saving grace that we may hold fast to your great goodness in our lives and proclaim your justice in in the world. Amen. Uh, today's reading comes from First Thessalonians chapter five. It says now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Expected longings to all of you. Uh, kids, uh, we, j we have Elevate this morning, right? Okay. Uh, so, first, second grade, uh, if you would like to head out back there with the Bannons, I believe they are expecting, longingly expecting you, expected longingly, eagerly anticipating all that good stuff. Uh, everybody else, it is, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to continue on in our sermon series this morning for Advent of a better story. Uh, and essentially what we're looking at is, it's, it's twofold. It's not necessarily that we as followers of Jesus tell a better story, though I, I believe we can and should, but it's that the gospel tells us a better story than our world can. It tells our hearts and our minds a better story than the world tells us. And so what I'm primarily concerned is not with us going out like we go from here and then we're going to go out and we're going to tell everybody, which we should, but we should tell everybody that the work and the hope that is transforming us. Not because you feel guilty, not because some guy up here said your righteousness depends on it, 
Not because if you really love Jesus, you're going to go tell 10 people before you eat lunch today. None of that. We tell people things that actually bring us joy, right? And so my hope before any of that is that the gospel would actually bring you joy, that it would be good news. So uh, this morning, we're, the, the word is prepare. We're technically, we're on the third week of Advent, but we're on the second week of our, of our series. So uh, I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, in the summer of uh, 2001, I had graduated from seminary. We bought our first house. We moved up uh, to back. We moved back to St. Charles, and we were uh, great with child. We were expecting uh, our first little girl, um, and yes, we found out. Uh, Mary found out. Mary knew. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, we, we were going to have a little girl, and we were eagerly anticipating. I'd also taken my first job in ministry. I was a youth minister. And uh, it, was, it was mid to late July. Our baby was due in September. And so uh, my wife had gone down to be with her parents, and I was getting ready to take my first job. I'd been on it for a couple weeks, and I was going to take a group of kids to um, Mississippi for youth camp. Okay, And I was driving on... Uh, 170 in the afternoon uh, when, uh, I, don't, I don't remember why, but when some reason my awesome Motorola flip phone started to vibrate in my pocket, and those were back in the days when you'd like feel it, uh, the whole car shook, and so I, it was my wife, and I answered it, and she said, well, and she was down with her parents, and she said, well, you ready to be a dad? Oh, <sighs> all right, it, if, if that, that there was a feeling of like, no. Um, I had just graduated from seminary, just took, taken my first job. We were in our first house. I was still like, I'm, we were five years into marriage, but I, it's not like I had gotten used to being a husband at this point and being responsible. All of these responsibilities, I felt like I was winging it. But at the same time, like I didn't want to freak my wife out. So I was like, well, and we, had, we were registered for birthing classes. So those, I figured that would explain everything. Um, uh, so um, I was like, well, I don't want to freak her out. So no, but we got six weeks. And, and I'm going to, and, and even in the house, I had lots of projects to do on the house and things that I was going to do. So I was like, no, I'm not, but, uh, but I will be. I will be. Give me six weeks. And she said, um, she said well, my, my water broke, so you better be ready faster than that. This is why they tell you not to talk on the phone and drive. I turned around somehow. I wound up going the other way on 170, so I was going back toward home, driving in the far left lane of Highway 70, coming back, getting ready to cross the Blanchett Bridge, going, what in the world? I was in a haze. I don't remember any of this, but I remember driving past Earth City, and that's where my dad's office was at the time, and I thought, He'll know. So I swerved from the far left lane over to the Earth City exit. No idea. I don't think I caused any accidents, but I didn't care. Uh, I walked in in a haze into the lobby of my, parent, of my dad's company, and the lady must have seen the look on my face, the secretary. I don't remember her name, but she was like, uh, are you okay? You, you need me to get your dad? And I must have mumbled something to the effect of, yes, please. Um, because my dad kind of came in a, in a rushed walk uh, up to the lobby, and I, I was like, I, um, 
we're getting ready to be, like, this is happening. Uh, on the other side of that, so my dad and I took off, and we went, and, I, and we painted the nursery, and we, like, tried to get some stuff ready to go. Meanwhile, my wife, who's down in Lebanon, Missouri, she, uh, who's, her mother gave birth to five kids with total labor time of less than five hours, so her, like, total for all five. So her dad was freaking out. They're driving up Highway 44, which, of course, is under construction, right? Um, which I love, the, I love the meme that last year it said, be like I-45 and continue working on yourself no matter how inconvenient it is for everybody else. Uh, so they get stuck in traffic. They have to call an ambulance in St. Clair. My father-in-law is rather panicked because of the history that he's been through. I'm panicked, so I went to Missouri Baptist, and I sat in a, in a chair, uh, a park bench outside, waiting for the ambulance to come. Uh, and then the ambulance came, and the paramedics got her out. She was on the stretcher. I was like, okay, we're going to be okay at this point. Uh, we get up to the desk at labor delivery, uh, me kind of, I guess, escorting the, the, the paramedics, my very pregnant wife on the stretcher, to which the lady at the desk said, okay, now what brings you in today? And I said, she broke her arm. Why? Take a shot in the dark. Why you think we're here? Um, at 2 o'clock the next morning, July 27th, 2001, we, we, my wife gave birth to a beautiful, flaming, premature but healthy, mohawked, red, red-headed, little pistol of a, of a girl. And, uh, and it's been chaos ever since. It has not slowed down from there. This being, this is the third week of Advent. It's the second week of our, in our Advent series, because we always have the Thanksgiving share service. But the word that we're going to talk about today is prepare. To prepare, let every heart prepare him room. Uh, last week we looked at the call to wait, that Advent is a time where we both enter into, as Joel said, we enter into the, saint, the story of the saints of old, and we wait and we anticipate, uh, we, we remember that our Messiah has come, but we also wait and long for his return. And so, what, so that's wait. This, this week uh, we look at, as we wait, what do we do? How do we prepare for the return of our Messiah. What do we do when we wait? How do we wait? And it may not come in our lifetime. Uh, it, it may not happen. It may happen. It may be six weeks earlier than we think. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we prepare? So what I want to do is I want to look at the historical, cultural background of what's happening in First Thessalonians that Paul is writing to. And then Paul gives us, Paul gives us a way as a people after this on how do we wait? How do we prepare for the return of the Messiah? Because we're not killing time here. So first, we're going to give the biblical historical context. Uh, Thessalonians is thought to be, 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest books written, uh, one of the earliest letters written. It's written by Paul to this church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas went to visit the, uh, Thessalonica. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. It was rather adventurous. They do what they did. They go in. Paul made a practice everywhere he went. He'd go into the synagogue first. And here, this is important, okay? 
uh, he would go into the synagogue and he did not preach conversion away from Judaism. What he preached is Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. This is, Paul would never have said, I converted. Paul would say, Christ is the fulfillment. And, and if, if, if anybody in the synagogue received him, if anybody was like, tell me more about this Jesus, uh, then he would tell him more. And then he would go from there, and he would work in relationships. And then he would go to the Greeks. And Thessalonica saw a large number of Jews and a, an even larger number of Greeks and Romans who declared their allegiance to Jesus and said, I am following Jesus. Um, and that created a stir. And you need to know that, that this was not uncommon. It created a stir amongst people, both Jews and Romans. Uh, and people went to the Roman authorities and said, this group of people has declared their allegiance to Jesus. And what they're saying is there is a greater king than Caesar. Followers of Jesus in Thessalonica became heavily persecuted. Uh, in fact, as if you read in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that some of them even died, and it is thought that they were probably killed in, because of their faith. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. As they've declared their allegiance to Jesus and as they're facing all kinds of persecution, and they ask the question, okay, if our friends have died in Jesus, you said Jesus was coming back, what do we do if they've died? And so Paul writes, it's a, it's a pretty well-known passage in chapter 4, pretty well-known and taken out of con. Well, yeah, there's a lot in this sermon today, and I'm, I'm not going to try to spend a whole lot of time on all of it, but uh, this was just frustrating to put together, so, so bear with me, all right? Um, in chapter 4, Paul says, I wanted to write to you so that you weren't misinformed about those who had fallen asleep. They're not gone. It's not over. They didn't miss out. Because we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have hope. We grieve as, this, as if this is not it. And then Paul gives this amazing picture what, of what will happen. The Lord, one day the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of the archangel with the trumpets playing. The dead in Christ will rise to meet him in the air. And then those who are still alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. All right now, this is very early on, and all of this was still forming. It's, it's, Paul probably thought that this could happen any day. And in reality, it could have happened any day, but I think Paul thought this was imminent. By the time you get to 2 Thessalonians, you can see Paul's like, okay, I still think this could happen any day, but it could be generations, because a day with the Lord is like a thousand days. Uh, or like a thousand years. So we also have to learn how to live in anticipation of this while figuring out we're gonna, there's going to have to be marriage and birth and living amongst these nations. So it, it, it may or may not happen uh, any day, but he writes to encourage them. Second Thessalonians, they thought they had missed out, and so Paul encourages them there as well, but we don't have time to get into all that. So I'm not sure exactly how all this takes place, uh, what this will look like, the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the first coming of Jesus didn't look like anybody thought it would. So the second coming, it might be like, like people shooting out of the grave as he's coming down, and then those who are in Christ coming. I, it's not going to be all of us like folded clothes on the 
on the airplane seats. I, I'm, pre I'm pretty confident. But um, it, this could be metaphor. This could be reality. I don't know. But I will tell you this. I, I think it's going to be pretty awesome when Christ returns. And so Paul tells this church, use this imagery, use this thought, take this and encourage one another with it. That he is returning. Despite what you face right now. Despite the persecution that you are currently facing. And this is what he used then to usher in chapter 5, which we read earlier. So Paul echoes the words of Jesus from Luke 21 that we looked at last week. Stay awake. We talked about this last week. This has, this, this has nothing to do with... We've, we have abused the term awake and woke all, all over the place. And the wake up people get mad at you for being woke and all that stuff. Um, but I want to put just a little bit more icing on the top of this as we talk about more than just waiting but actually preparing. And here's what I want you to remember, all right? You, you don't check out for the rest of the sermon, but you can if you want after this sentence. We naturally prepare for what we believe uh, we naturally prepare for what we believe is our greatest hope. And we naturally prepare against what we believe is our greatest threat. We will prepare for what we believe is our greatest hope. And we will prepare against what we believe is our greatest threat. Does that make sense? You look at that and go, yeah, okay. In every part of life. Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica that Christ is going to return, that their hope in him is not in vain. We, we sing every once in a while, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. But he also helps them to understand their suffering, that their suffering is not in vain. You're not doing it wrong. They are children of the day. Followers of Jesus, we are a people of the day. And so Paul gives this kind of moral component to what's going on um, in uh, the church in Thessalonica and why it was, why they were being persecuted. So the dominant culture in Thessalonica was obviously Roman. It was Romanism, uh, and it was oppressively dominant in that day. Uh, there were some things about Roman culture that was good. Right? They developed roads and they developed systems and pathways and mathematics and all the stuff that developed in Rome that was actually, uh, there was some good stuff there. Business and enterprise, you, you, there was a little bit of an element of freedom to be able to participate in that. Uh, but there was an ultimate piece of Roman culture that was supreme above all else, and that was the worship of or the honoring of the emperor, the king. And you participate in the festivals that honor and worship the emperor. And you pay your taxes to Rome. And this group of followers of Jesus, though by all accounts, uh, continue to pay their taxes, but they refuse to follow the behaviors of the night. A lot of the Roman festivals and feasts were rather moral, morally questionable. Okay? Um, pagan rituals and pagan feasts, uh, and they were morally questionable. And, and many of these Christians refused to follow the behaviors of the night that were common to Roman culture. Some of this just put them out of place. Some of this just put them in bad relationship with neighbors. And some of this, this was actually illegal, and some of this actually put them in threats for their life. 
And so Paul would tell them, you don't belong to the night anymore. You can leave the night to the night. You belong to the day. In Colossians chapter 3, this is what Paul says. If you have been raised with Christ, you put these behaviors off because it's no longer you. And you put these behaviors on. You are a citizen of a different kingdom. Your loyalty is to a different king. Now, culturally, it's, it's, it's different in our day. Uh, Christianity is, is... Christianity, probably philosophically, is still the most dominant culture. Although Christians, in and of themselves, are not necessarily the dominant cultural force, but Christianity as a philosophy probably still is. Um... Paul saying to the, to, the, to the church in Thessalonica not to put your hope in Roman imperialism. But he would also say to us, don't put your hope in Christian nationalism. Don't put your hope in cultural Christianity. Don't even put your hope in American capitalism. And, and this is where it's hard. In our day, it's confusing. Right? It can be confusing. There is a Christian culture. The general values of our day are influenced highly by Christianity. And some of it's good. And some of it is good and good for all. And there's kind of a rebellion to that that's like a post-Christian world where we're like, I'll believe anything except for Christianity. And we only point out the bad in Christianity. And just like Rome, there were good things about Rome that benefited all people there are good things about Christian culture that benefits all people, but when Christian, when Christian morals are forced, then that is, that, is not, that is not the message of Jesus. When those are forced on people. Um, there's a lot of good that results from Christianity, and we've talked about this uh, a little bit before. Um, there are some distinctions from Roman culture that Christianity ushered in, okay? Women's rights. Right now we look at when we go, ah, Christians are so uh, oppressive of women. Um, no. Yes, yes, there are elements but, but also no. Romans, Greeks, was, they were oppressive to women. Women did not have rights, uh, by and large. Uh, marriage, if, if you saw um, Adele's interview last week, I only heard about it, I, I didn't actually watch it. Uh, Adele's interview with, with Oprah, where she said she divorced her husband because um, she loved him but wasn't in love with him. And I, and I think Oprah got up and said, women hear this. And then, and then the Christians got in an uproar about that. Oh, this is all terrible. Well, listen, Hillel and Shammai were two rabbis in the first century. They said the exact same things, uh, but it was for men. Women didn't have rights in marriage and divorce. Men did. Uh, and so now, and I read an article the other day about, um, from a sociologist that said, uh, I'm going to, hear me, I'm going to try to get through this without laughing. Um, that there's different types of marriage in our day and it looks differently and, and marriage is designed for your personal fulfillment and happiness. 
And it was kind of one of those, tell me you're not married without telling me you're not married. Um, and listen, I love my wife. We both laughed about this. And I wanted to know if this sociologist would come and tell my wife that she was meant to be for my personal fulfillment and happiness. You want, you, would you like to tell her that? I'd love for you to. And, to, and you, can, you can say the same thing to me, but if, what if it's not my personal fulfillment and happiness for me to fulfill hers? There was no sacrifice in love and, 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 and all of that stuff. Um, and so marriage, Christianity actually called men to account. And this has been abused and highly manipulated, but it called men to account. You don't get to leave your wife when you feel like it. You don't put her away when you, just, when you find something else. You are accountable to her. It's been so long since that, we presume it now. That was not Roman. That's Christian. If you're in, a, if you're in any kind of, now, has that been abused? Yes. Yes. The patriarchy, all, yes. Yes. That's not Christian either. Um, human rights. We are in a world that values, we are in a nation that values human rights. And if you have, if, uh, and I, you know, when the protests were happening and the, uh, the protests will happen again, and I see Christians are like, oh, we're not for pro- protests. I'm like, we are protestant. We are for protests. At some point in time, I'm reformed. At some point in time, we were reformed and always reforming. Um, so, yeah, we are, for, we are for proper deconstruction and good deconstruction of things that need to be torn down. If you are in a world or any nation that has human rights, that's not Roman. That's Christian. Roman had Roman citizen rights. You had rights as a Roman citizen. The idea of human rights was not a thing. Um, care for children, defense of the unborn, uh, infanticide. Um, none of those were defended. None of those... Uh, the, the view that we have of children in our day, that they are valuable, that they are precious, that they are image bearers of God, not just future laborers, that's distinctly Christian. Christians started orphanages. They didn't exist before then. Um, justice, the idea of justice was completely up to the whim of the emperor in the Romans' day. Claudius was the emperor during this time, and Claudius was actually okay. There's some interesting things about him. He followed Caligula. Claudius was having to clean up the financial mess of all of Caligula's parties and his indiscretions. So Claudius was having to clean up from that. But then after Claudius would come Nero. Nero set the dogs on Christians in Rome because, um, because, not because he wanted to persecute Christians, but because he needed something to throw the stench off of his own indiscretions. And so he wanted to get the Senate involved in something else, so he released the dogs on Christians. Justice was a tricky thing in the Roman Empire. Now there is a central law by which we say we hold these truths to be self-evident, even though they're not self-evident, they're evident because of Scripture, uh, that all men are created equal, even though we've lived that out with a whole lot of blind spots. Something else. Caring for the weak. Listen, this was not a Greek or Roman thing. At all. Jesus gives his Beatitudes where he announces this new, uh, what a citizen of the kingdom of God should look like. And he says, blessed are the poor. 
Rome and Greek would say cursed are the poor. Divinely cursed are the poor. Blessed are the rich and the powerful and the influential. We have power. We have divine authority to use that power and to do as we see fit. Jesus turns that on its head. I Sometimes I wonder if we brought the Beatitudes, what would the current day Beatitudes be? Even in Christian culture, what would they look like? Um, would, the, would we, you know, we have, a, we have this idea of a prosperity gospel. If you really love Jesus, your life will be great. You will be blessed. And we think blessed. We think financial, right? Easy life. Things will go well. That's not... That's not what Jesus says, necessarily. But blessed looks different, poor in spirit. Prosperity gospel, that idea, that, that's not, here's, here's what's helpful. That's not just like a bad part of the gospel. That, that's pagan. Christians were persecuted for these beliefs in Thessalonica. Some of these we're still fighting against today. Some of these we're actually trying to get back to today. Um, and Paul tells you, continue to, Paul tells them, continue to live this out. One day Christ will return. One day Christ will usher in the kingdom of the daytime. Christ will usher in the kingdom of the light. So walk as children of the light. His return might not be immediate, but it is imminent. So practice our future citizenship now. We live now for a future kingdom. Um, And so Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica, Roman imperialism cannot and will not save you. Because he says some are promising peace and security. That was a Roman chant. Pax Romana, peace and security, will come from Rome as long as you declare your ultimate allegiance to the emperor. To us in our day, take your pick. American capitalism, cultural Christianity, moral relativism cannot and will not save you. And so Paul would say, live as good citizens of Rome, of the city, as much as you possibly can, but also realize no institution, no human institution can provide peace and security. Every human institution is broken. Um, and at the same time, he would also say to us, no human institution will destroy you. Okay? So not only, and he gets into this in 2 Thessalonians, not only is Rome not your hope, Rome is not your peace and security, but also Rome won't destroy you. Rome doesn't have power. In fact, in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says that Jesus will come and with his breath will destroy the man of lawlessness. So, pressure's on. It's not on you to uncover the great conspiracy. Who's going to be the Antichrist? Jesus is like, great news. You don't even have to worry about it because you can't beat him anyway. I do. So your job, faithful to me, loyal to me, your allegiance to me, follow me. That's what, work, that's what you work on. We naturally tend to prepare for what we believe is our ultimate hope. And we, act, we, 
we naturally tend to, f- to prepare against what we believe might be our ultimate destruction. And Paul tells this church, your hope nor your destruction is with Rome. So you don't have to gain, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to embrace Rome to gain peace and security, nor do you have to destroy Rome to gain peace and security. You follow me to gain peace and security. Despite what happens around you, you remain faithful to Jesus. So follower of Jesus, our hope is not in America. Our hope is not in her political parties, either one, uh, or libertarianism. Because um, I always, when we say both political parties, I want to make sure we cover all the, or the independent, or the, you know, any of those. Uh, our hope is not in her economy, how good or how bad it is. It's not in her technology. It's not in retirement. It's not in, our, uh, it's not in how good of grades we get. It's not in how well our kids perform, if they're going to succeed, if they're going to be the next famous scientist or sports star or whatever. It's not in the size of our church. It's not in owning the libs. It's not in getting all the laws just the way we think they should be or should not be. Our hope is not in charity work. Uh, our hope is not in doing enough good things. Did I miss something? Any? Okay. And our hope is not in how much our, pa- our kids respect us. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Our hope is not in being married. I say that. Our hope is not in a happy marriage. Our hope is not in... Take your pick. Where are we... Te- our hope is not in that one thing showing up under the tree on Christmas morning. But we can have fun with it. All right? I'm not going to do that. We can have fun with it. Um, and though we are called to participate in all of these things, though we are called to be good citizens, uh, which here again was not a Roman thing, the idea of all people participating. Democracy in Greek, it was, they, Greeks invented democracy for men who were of power. <laughs> democracy for all is a is a Christian thing. It took a while to get there, and still it's taking a while to get there. But we participate in the government, and, and sometimes we could probably hold off on, like, how much we hate the government. Like, what is there? It's God-ordained, and there could be good things that actually come from it. But none of these things are our ultimate hope. It is in Christ alone, through whom we have obtained salvation and who will one day return and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul gives us weapons to use in this war, to this earthly warfare, but they're totally different than what we're used to. He says, protect your heart with the breastplate of faith and love and protect your mind with the helmet of the hope of salvation. And so we prepare for this coming kingdom by practicing and living out our citizenship of Christ's kingdom right now. We are rehearsing a coming kingdom as we prepare for our coming kingdom. He finishes uh, this section by saying, encourage one another, holding each other up. We need reminding often human systems that this world operates on. This is not our ultimate hope. This is not our home. We're at work preparing and laboring in and on this world to prepare for her, for her coming king. And then in 5.12, Paul gets super practical. So let me read this for you. And I lost my place here. And I will bring this home a lot faster than I had initially intended. Hopefully. First uh, Thessalonians 5, starting in, in uh, verse 12. And then I'll break these down. 
just a little bit. This is our practice. If you want to take this, these passages home this week and read through them again and again, this is what Paul is telling us to do to prepare for our coming king. So he says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Think about that last piece. Give thanks because that's the will of God for you. That always takes me by surprise. Um, okay, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then he finishes out with a, with a benediction and says, greet each other with a, with a holy kiss. We can work on that. We'll work on that one next week. Um, his first charge is in regards to leadership of the church. This is complicated. In our day, this is complicated. But let me tell you this. Authority in the church is not about power. Authority in the church is about accountability. This is about how we see elders. This is about we don't, when we draw up our diagram of elders in the church, we do not put elders at the top of the pyramid. We put elders at the bottom that, they, the, that elders in the church are to be doing the heavy lifting. This is not a glory position. Hebrews 13, 17, which is my favorite and least favorite verse in the Bible, obey your leaders and submit to them. I like that part. For they are keeping watch care over your souls for those, as those who will have to give an account. That part scares me to death. Elders in the church are to be humble, God-honoring, fearful men. And, and then and in, in um, First Thessalonians, these are probably brand new converts mixed in with some other people that Paul has sent there. Timothy eventually comes there. I'm not sure if he's talking about Timothy right here. But, but this is a good relationship. This is not something that's supposed to be abused over you. Uh, this is not something that's supposed to hold you in fear. Uh, Christ, the, the elders in the church are supposed to be Christ-like, which G, Paul, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, that Christ lays down his life for his bride. Elders are called to study and teach, to be accountable before God, before God's people. Elders are not brand managers. Elders are not businessmen running the church like a, just a nonprofit. They're not overly confrontational, demanding that everybody fall in line. Elders are to have personal integrity, to be honest, to be approachable. And ultimately, uh, as those who stand watch care over your souls, elders, th this, is what, this is what is helpful and hard. I will not stand before the left wing or the right wing of the church in ultimate judgment. So I don't care is what I'm telling you. I don't care what the right wing says that I am or am not. I don't care what the left wing says that I am or am not. I won't stand accountable before them in judgment. I will also not stand accountable before the Baptists uh, or the Pope or um, Presbyterians, much to their surprise, or, I'm just kidding, um, 
Uh, I will not stand accountable to the Episcopalians or the Assembly of God or even the Anglicans. Followers of Jesus who are elders will stand accountable before God. That's encouraging, and that is daunting. As parishioners, you also have a role in this wherever you go to church. If you go here or if you go to whatever church you go to, submission to elders and submission to authority is not coercive. It is a willful gift that you, as followers of Jesus, as parishioners, give. And so, when elders are acting as elders in the church and fulfilling these roles, then you can give that gift in encouragement. And when elders are not acting in that role, then you withhold that gift as a warning. Does that make sense? Not like be difficult and be hard, but like say, this is not... Before God, I don't believe this is what an elder should look like. Now, don't let that like fill you with, okay, and start writing a list. You can still be gentle with that. Um, but, but that submission is not something coerced or forced by you. Submission is a gift that God gives each of us. And so his first charge is to leadership in the gift, uh, leadership uh, in the church. Uh, it's complex. It's a big issue in our day, and I've tried to make it a little more simple. Um, then there's a call to the common good of all people, how we engage and encourage everyone. In verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, I-D-L-E. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil. So in other words, it's not your job to, to uh, avenge. It's not your job to carry out vengeance, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Uh, the word admonish means to warn, urge, or encourage. And what I want to, just a couple things to draw your attention to. Notice the difference between admonishing the idle, the idle people, I-D-L-E, meaning those who are just not doing anything, willfully not practicing the faith, versus encouraging the faint-hearted. You don't admonish the wounded. You don't warn the wounded. If somebody, is in, if somebody is hurting, that's not the time to come up and say, you can go to hell for that. Unless you follow that by saying, just kidding, I love you. But I still wouldn't start with that leader. There can be an urging, there can be a gentle urging and a rebuke to those who are just like, I don't care. And it can be helpful. It doesn't, don't like, but, but to the hurt and the faint-hearted and those who are struggling and wrestling, Paul says to encourage them. Here again, I don't know anybody that's overly encouraged in our day. Um, and then there's a call for each of us, and this is not just for the elders, it's for everybody who bears the name of Jesus Verse 15, to seek to do good. This is not passive, this is active, to be looking for it. And then there's a call in the last few verses for the foundational practices of following Jesus. Verse 16, he says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Um... This is, this is the foundational practice of Christianity. You may look at this and go, okay, I, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. 
This is what it is to declare our allegiance to Jesus. So this is not like a list. You've got to go, okay, am I, am I doing this? I mean, it, it can be helpful, but this is what it looks like to declare. So it, it, in, some, in a lot of ways, it just makes sense. Um, but to also know that our personal holiness is not first tied to moralism, to being moral and being better than and all this kind of stuff. Our, that is not holiness. Holiness is being people of the light. It is about our relationship with Jesus. And so what we believe and what controls our emotions and knowing the grand story of Scripture and being encouraged by the resurrection, our default beliefs of hope and gratitude and how we see the world and, and, and then our behaviors and how that follows that out and how we cope with things, why we do or don't do certain things, what we practice in our behavior. These are, these are important, but it's more about an identity than it is about I'm being better than. It's about if you're a child of light, you walk as a child of light. Um, all right. Over the summer, uh, Allison and I we, we went to... Um, we did this week of intensive therapy when we were in Colorado. And uh, we, would, we stayed in this house. There were a few other people. I was just south of Denver. Um, and we'd get up in the morning. We'd have three hours of therapy. Uh, and then in the afternoon, Alice and I would go together somewhere. Uh, and we would do either our homework or we would talk through this stuff either together or uh, separately with some form of, like, liquid hops and barley. And one of the things that um, the therapist said that hit me over and over again is he talked about the story that I would often rehearse. Um, you may or may not be like me. I don't know, but this is me. It's really easy for me to rehearse my wounds. It's really easy for me to rehearse my resentments. It's really easy for me to rehearse my failures. Um, let me tell you, nobody criticizes me more than me. Uh, and I'm, I'm not asking, I'm, this is not like to, I'm saying this is a fault uh, and and one of the things that he said is um, that I have to rehearse the better and truer story. To stop just seeing all the ways that I fail or all the ways that I should be better and to see the ways that God uses me, how he is shaping me, the hope that the Holy Spirit is at work in me, even in my wounds, even in my insecurities, even in my temptations, even in my failures, that somehow these will be used for his glory, and that's the story that you need to rehearse. And so this week, if, if we have an improper view of the world, it's easy, for us to, it's easy for us to rehearse that negative story. It's easy for us to rehearse just how much we failed or just how... And some of us need to rehearse, like, I have sinned. Uh, if, 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 like, if you're like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm good... Um, call a friend up and have them speak honestly to you. Uh, but for, those, for most of us who, who have wounds, we need to rehearse this better story, the ultimate story, encouraging each other with our ultimate hope. And so that's the practice for this week. The resurrection of Jesus informs the follower of Jesus what our ultimate hope is, where it is found, that our king is returning, that what we do now is not in vain, that even if it's unseen, somehow it will find its way into this new and glorious kingdom, the work we do on ourselves, the work that we do around us in serving and loving other people. We are practicing a future kingdom now in what we love, in who we give our love and lives to, in where we place our hope, and how we see ourselves, and what we indulge in, and what we refrain from, and how we act in our behaviors. 
if we see Christianity as this is the way we do things because we want a cultural majority, then our hope is in this world. If we see Christianity as just like, well, it's okay, but I, I, ultimately I'm the one in charge and I want to do what I want, and we pick and choose parts of the Bible that we like, uh, or if we see this like outward external moralism to fit in with the Pax Americana, it will not satisfy, it will be frustrating, it will not make sense, and it will not be worth it. But if we see ourselves as citizens of a future kingdom, a kingdom that certainly will come, a kingdom of light, then what we are doing in these things, either when we fail or when we succeed, we are rehearsing and practicing this future kingdom. The old saying, we're not just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. We are preparing our hearts we are preparing each other, and ultimately we are preparing the world for the return of the king. Um, I've, I've framed it this way before. When, how do you treat your house when you're going on vacation? I, my wife likes to get everything in tidy so that when we come home for vacation, everything is ordered. That's not how I treat our house when I'm getting ready for going on vacation. I'm like, we're getting out of here tear through the clothes, find what I need. We'll pick that up later. My goal is to get out of here, okay? Paul says that's not how the end is going to be. How do, we pre- how do we view our home if we are preparing to welcome important guests? Our first year in our house, we were, we, we were going to host my wife's family. She's got four siblings and her parents, and her parents, God bless them, have this kind of Christmas view of our kids sliding down the banister with English accents, you know, singing songs, and uh, it's straight out of Hallmark, and it's kind of unreasonable. But, um, uh, but man, we were excited. We were going to host this whole family, and we were so pumped and so excited that they were going to be there. And we cleaned places of our house that probably haven't been cleaned since. Like, we washed the baseboards. Um, we dusted over the top of the doorways. Uh, we, oh, oh, we vacuumed. Wh- whoever, whoever needs to be put in some kind of torment for um, popcorn ceilings, uh, we vacuumed all the dust off the popcorn ceilings from the ceiling fan. Um, and like we, 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 it was a labor of excitement and anticipation because the important guests were coming. Followers of Jesus in our love and care and in our personal holiness and our commitment to one another, our caring for the weak and the vulnerable and honoring one another, having a high view of the poor in spirit, rehearsing our redemption over our failures over and over again, being in community, doing this together, seeking out to do good to everyone. We are preparing our hearts, we are preparing each other, and we are preparing our world for the return of our King. And I want to encourage you, as Paul did, please don't lose hope, friends. Don't lose hope. Christ has come, and he will come again. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus that you have not left us to wander and, and, and if you are going to come. We celebrate coming soon in Advent. We celebrate a physical birth of God, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. You lived and existed in time and history. It's historical fact. The resurrection is attested to like nothing else in history. We're not shooting in the dark here. But where are our affections? 
What are we ultimately preparing for? Renew yourself as king of our hearts and minds. May, we, may our lives be preparation for your return. Renew our hope. Renew our strength. Help us to love and serve one another for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.